Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start with one of those great navel gazers. Okay. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So the question is, we know how to describe what we see when we look at things. You know, you can look at the room you're in right now and write down the features. Or you can uh, try to describe a great landscape that you remember from some trip you took. But when somebody asks you to look inside yourself, how do you begin to describe what you see in your own mind? I mean, in a way, you are forced to resort to metaphors. You know, we talked about this a lot. There are like concrete metaphors for abstract mental properties. And so maybe you think of your mind if you, you try to examine it as something like a uh, you know, like a castle or a building, a solid landscape you can walk through that has features you could describe. Or maybe you think about it like a weather pattern that's constantly transient and changing. Or maybe you can't really think of it uh, in in comparison to any physical object at all, in which case, how would you ever even be able to describe what you're looking at? And how different of a person would you be if you had the tools to see more clearly what's inside your own mind? Well, even in this, we're using terms about, about seeing and, and visualization. Yeah. And, uh, and certainly, I think a lot of us fall back on cinematic interpretations of the of inner mind states and, you know, identity and who we are. Uh, but, but there's, you know, there's more going on there. Like I, I sometimes when I'm more self-conscious of what says going says going on in my you know default mode network. Mm-hmm. It, it won't even be visual. Like my visual world will be just wrapped up in whatever I'm doing, say driving down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's uh, it's this non-visual world that is wrapped up in like voices of the past and perceive uh, you know possible future. Mm-hmm. Would you like to think about death and about all the ways in which you have failed? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly <laughs> that sort of thing. You know, and that and there may be flashes of visual visualizations in there, but, but, but often not, at least in my case. Uh, and, but of course, in all th- things concerning the, uh, the inner mind, uh, this is going to change from individual to individual. Yeah, totally. And so today we are embarking on a multi-part episode series that we're going to be doing here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, looking uh, at the general topic of psychedelics and most specifically, I think, with, with a strong focus on uh, the fungal domain there, on on psilocybin mushrooms and related species and compounds. Yeah, yeah. Not only about, you know, to our point earlier, uh, not only about what they seem to change in human perception and cognition, but what they reveal about human perception and cognition, how they factor into our past, how they factor into our present, and how they may well factor into our future. Yeah, that's right. Now, I think maybe one thing that has pushed us in this direction is some books we've been reading recently. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should mention them at the top. I know we've both been reading uh, Michael Pollan's most recent book, How to Change Your Mind, which is all about psychedelics and about, uh, you know, the the concept of of spirituality and mental life and why this is so elucidated by and and associated with psychedelic compounds. Right. And it is just an excellent book. Uh, You know, it's gotten rave reviews uh, for for um, for excellent reasons. It's it's one of these where you can pick it up without knowing anything really about psychedelic culture or you know or the you know the nineteen sixties mm-hmm. or 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 botany and ethnobotany. You don't you don't really have to have a background in any of these uh, things. And Pollen, as with his other major works, you know, just really walks you through it, adds in personal experiences, and and is very much approaching it um, as 
an older individual who did not have a lot of experiences with psychedelic substances. And and I think that's a very interesting and appropriate treatment because Mm -hmm. a lot of what I've at least learned recently about psychedelics makes it seem like psychedelics may be of much greater use and of much greater interest actually to older, more mature people dealing with thoughts of life and death and the meaning of life and all that than as, say, as it is often presented uh, as sort of a party drug to, you know, experience by teenagers. Right. Yeah, I think, I can't remember if it was if Pollen said this or he was quoting somebody else as saying that um, psychedelics are, are wasted on the young. <laughs> it might have been uh, Carl Jung. Was it Carl Jung that said that? Okay, yeah, maybe Pollen was counting, was quoting Jung. On that, but um, but yeah, I can see there there being an argument to that to a certain extent. However, that's not to discount the possible benefits to younger individuals as well. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into all that as we proceed. Well, I just think it seems very plausible to me that it's actually much more useful in general for older people to be given tools to when they're doing that mental introspection, you know, looking through the window into their own mm-hmm. mind, to have the tools to, to see more clearly what's inside and to go in and move the furniture around. Right, or to sort of knock the barnacles off the hull of the ship. Uh-huh. Uh, because that's that's one way of looking at it, is just the, the younger vessel may have fewer barnacles. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or at least for a lot of people when you were younger, perhaps you were um, you fortunate enough, privileged enough to not have that many psychic barnacles that need to be dislodged or could conceivably be dislodged, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, though despite everything we're saying right now, I also want to make clear that our approach over these following episodes is going to be mainly a sort of like a descriptive and, and analytical discussion not one where we are advocating any sort of personal course of action. So we're not going to tell you to take psychedelics. Mm-hmm. We're not going to tell you not to take psychedelics. Uh, that That's not our goal. Instead, we want to talk about what they can do and what they mean. Right. Uh, but in, in addition to mentioning Pollen's book, another important book that I haven't read but that you have and I've read about is a book by Terrence McKenna that I know you've been enjoying greatly, which I think is out in uh, – uh, maybe is, uh, you might say, on less solid footing or a little squishier territory, but is also very interesting. Well, yeah, one thing about about Food of the Gods is, first of all, it's a 1993 book, so mm-hmm. a lot of time has passed since it came out. And then also it is it is kind of a mixture, you know. So McKenna, you know, brings his background in ethnobotany, ecology, and, uh, and an understanding of shamanism uh, into this, uh, this book. And he's ultimately making a... a a rather grand hypothesis uh, mm-hmm. that that I'll talk about here in a bit, uh, but uh, yeah, you, I, I feel like with with the food of the gods, one has to be a little bit choosy in what what you really like grab onto. But uh, but he has a lot of very interesting things to say, some wonderful insight that still stands up to this day. But it is a book that I think needs to be appreciated alongside uh, aside other sources, especially today. Well, yeah, I mean, I think especially in the kind of perspective we tend to present on the show. I feel like there's a lot of great literature in the realm of psychedelia Mm -hmm. that falls into this category where uh, it's stuff written by people who are genuine experts who, you know, really do know what they're talking about in the realm of psychedelic compounds, the chemistry, uh, the botany, the, the cultural practices and all that and have great things to say on those subjects, but then also tend to be prone, I would say, much more often than people in other subject domains to kind of get out into highly speculative and even seemingly supernatural territory. Right. So you have that tendency, but also just the the, you know, the post-1960s 
taboo aspect of the subject. Yeah. Uh, where for, for as we'll, we'll discuss for decades, uh, it was not something that, that was in an accepted area of study. It was left to the fringes and the counterculture. And so there was a lot of baggage there. You know, the, but both of those, uh, those things can sort of uh, uh, hurt an individual's work in this area. But another uh, sort of compelling inspiration for these episodes is uh, when I attended the, the recent World Science Festival in New York, uh, there was a panel on uh, psychedelics as well. Oh, yeah. When uh, Eduardo Cohn was on? Yes, Cohn was on here. This is where I, I learned about him and his work, uh, plus a few other individuals that we'll discuss as we proceed. Mm-hmm. So obviously we've covered psychedelics and Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, numerous times in the past, discussing LSD, psilocybin, as well as such counterculture figures as Tom, as Timothy Leary and John C. Lilly. And uh, we've, we've been meaning to come back to psychedelics for a deeper dive for a while. But one of the real reasons that we're reaching back uh, into the subject right now is that we are living in a very exciting time uh, as far as these substances are concerned. Yeah. Because uh, talk, in, in research terms. Yeah, in research terms. Yeah, because basically these are substances that modern Western medicine explored for a brief time in the mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. And then, and, they, and when they were looking at them, um, they were encountering many promising results, uh, indicating how they might be used to treat addiction, uh, address psychological problems, and even unlock a better understanding of the human mind. But uh, due to political and societal pressures, uh, they were all in turn declared illegal substances, Schedule One drugs in the United States. Yeah, I think uh, was it psilocybin. I think was made illegal in the United States in 1968, and then made a Schedule One substance in I think 1970. Yeah, I believe that that was the timeline. And uh, and of course, uh, this also in, 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 you know involved LSD and uh, various other substances. But basically, the result was that decades of potential exploration were lost when modern science had scarcely explored you know more than what ancient peoples understood about the substances involved, or you know to, to, a, to a certain extent understood them less well. Uh, compared to ancient uh, uh, societies. So, I mean, we're talking three-plus decades during which these powerful substances were purely the domains of counterculture and illegal activity in the West. Mm-hmm. You know, and nobody was studying. So, so, well, there was some study, but it, it was sort of driven underground right. or not taken very seriously in the academic communities. Right. It was, it was considered, like, risky to yeah. propose, uh, say, a psilocybin study for a while. Yeah, like if you're a pharmacologist, a psychopharmacologist pursuing uh, psilocybin, it could be a, cur- a bad career move. Right, yeah. I mean, it, so it was almost treated as if all of these substances were dead ends, mm-hmm. as if, you know, we'd reach the point where it was like, oh, well, this is, a, this is just a poison that, you know, for, uh, that, that some people are going to dangerously use for recreational purposes. Uh, which, you know, as, as we'll explore, is, is, is wrong in two ways. Like yeah. it's wrong in the historical context when you see how substances like this have been used for thousands of years. And it's wrong on the, the medical research front. Yeah. I mean, one of the funny things is given our view of the very like square buttoned up 1950s, the 1950s were relatively a time of, uh, you know, uh, abundant uh, research and permissiveness mm-hmm. in exploring these topics. Absolutely. So, yeah, there were some decades there, uh, some, some pretty dry decades as far as psychedelic research was concerned. But as we emerged from the 1990s, the culture began to shift and we began to see new experimentation into how especially psilocybin could be used to treat specific conditions. And, you know, this is what we've covered in the past on the show and what you've, you've heard covered a lot elsewhere. You know, the studies here and there that reveal new potential and perhaps point the way for greater and renewed study and even decriminalization, at least for clinical uses, uh, you know, in study and studies, if nothing else. 
And so as Michael Pollan points out in How to Change Your Mind, you know, we're living in a, a true renaissance of psychedelic study. And I don't think that's uh, you know, an overstatement yeah. to say that. I think especially since around the year 2006 when mm-hmm. there was a, a big seminal research paper out about psilocybin that we will talk about in detail in a later episode in the series. Right. And, and I'm not and I'm not referring to say like uh, what Colorado uh, efforts in Colorado to decriminalize them for, you know, perhaps with, with recreational usage in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm talking about like clinical uses. The potential benefits here are profound. And if uh, the, the trends, uh, you know, continue here, you know, modern medical science has a, has a lot uh, to gain from it. You know, it's 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 frustrating to to think about those decades in which you know less was being done with them, but uh, but you know we could have easily remained in kind of a dark age and had several more decades in which uh, these substances were not being studied. So it's a remarkable time, really. All right. Well, I think before we dive into especially psilocybin, but the psychedelics in general, maybe we should do a little foundation work because I know one thing that you, you were talking to me about that Terence McKenna gets into a good mm-hmm. bit in, in his work is. The idea of like what is a drug? What are drugs, and what do people see as drugs? Yeah, yeah. He he had a lot of uh, great thoughts on this uh, on this matter that I, I think are really good at sort of disrupting the sort of uh, like mental concrete that ends up getting embedded in our head regarding the different substances that we take into our body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, let's. I think we should talk about like what a drug is. Because, um, for instance, if you look at just a basic, say, Webster's definition, a drug is a medicine or other substance which has a physiological effect when ingested or otherwise introduced into the body. Mm -hmm. Now, while this certainly applies to, say, cocaine or ibuprofen, it also applies to coffee and alcohol. It applies to melatonin, herbal supplements, chocolate, tea, wheatgrass shots, chamomile, sugar, licorice, oatmeal, you name it. Yeah, we were talking uh, the other day, I know, about was it was it melatonin supplements you were looking at? That, oh no, I heard a, a, an ad on the radio for them. Yeah, that we're calling them drug free. All, all these drugs people take that advertise themselves as drug free, which I think is just. I, I'm not sure what people mean by that. I think they mean maybe like not containing uh, synthetically or lab-isolated chemicals that you can't pronounce the names of. Yeah. It's, it, you know, all natural or something. Well, yeah, it's weird how we, we use the, the term drug to sort of refer to things that are either in the domain of the illegal, as in like the war on drugs, or something that is in the domain of medical professionals. Yeah. Maybe something that uh, requires a prescription is produced by the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I don't see any reason why these all-natural substances are not drugs. They certainly are drugs. I mean, I'm doing drugs right now. I've got my coffee cup next to me. Oh, yeah. The whole drug-free thing kind of reminds me of, like, the, the people who say, I don't put any chemicals in my body. Mm-hmm. I know what they're talking about. Right. Like, they, you know, they want to eat sort of, like, all-natural whole foods. You know, I, I'll eat an apple. I'm not going to eat an apple bar that was made in a factory and has all these chemical ingredients listed that I can't n- pronounce. You know, right. I don't know what that stuff is. So, I, I mean, I understand that. And, of course, you know, there there are some reasons that you might, in truth, want to avoid certain kinds of industrial food additives. But the whole idea that you don't put any chemicals in your body is ridiculous. Yeah, and, and of course, we're not arguing that one should put everything into your body right. by any means. So, uh, you know, and ultimately, we all have to draw lines in the sand concerning this sort of thing. And those those lines may, you know, not make, you know, a whole lot of sense if you really analyze them. But I think one of the important things is to be able to realize where we're drawing the line in the sand and where that line is being drawn for us mm-hmm. uh, by, uh, you know, other other parties in society. 
But anyway, this is one of the the, the, the ideas that Terence McKenna discusses in Food of the Gods, and I, I think. Before we go any any further, I should just go ahead and like summarize like what this book is about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of about a lot of things, but but ultimately he has this uh, central hypothesis that he's pushing. Um, you know, he makes a passionate case for not only humanity's connection with psychedelic substances and the promise of their power, but also with the notion that they played a role in the emergence of consciousness. Yeah. Well, and sort of like in language and and human uh, intellectual abilities, right? Right, right. Um, Self-reflection in language in particular. And uh, Michael Pollan actually mentions it in his book as well. He refers to it as, uh, quote, the epitome of all mycocentric speculation. Right. Uh, And really, you do encounter some people in this world who – I, maybe their enthusiasm for for psilocybin and the mm-hmm. effects of these uh, psychoactive mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms, uh, you get the sense that it, it, they have had such positive experiences with them that it drives them to think about, you know, mushrooms as a sort of like center of everything good and holy in the world. I mean, in a way that might be unfair. Maybe that's over-psychologizing their their hypotheses and points Mm -hmm. of view. But like, for example, the mycologist Paul Stamets, or Stamets, who uh, comes up in Michael Pollan's book, who we've talked about on the show before. I think we talked about him in our Dune episode because I think he was friends with Frank Herbert. Oh, yes, I believe so. But, you know, he's got a very like mushroom-centric view of the world where in a way sort of mushrooms rule everything everything and that the mushrooms are like trying to communicate with us through these compounds and all that. And McKenna kind of falls in this category too. He sort of like sees the the mushroom regime everywhere on earth. Yeah, I think that's that's undeniable. Uh, at the same time, I mean, he does make a very, a, a very robust uh, case in this book. Again, a 1993 book, so uh, you know a lot has happened since then. But, but as Michael Pollan also points out, you know it's ultimately something that's not really susceptible to proof or disproof. And ultimately, McKenna never really fills in the blanks on how this would have actually affected biological evolution. Right. So you probably can't put a lot of stock in his hypothesis being correct, barring some other evidence that we're not aware of yet. But basically, you know, his idea is that like. Well, humanity owes its mental and cognitive capacities to mushrooms because, for example, I know one of the arguments he adduces is that because psilocybin mushrooms cause the experience of synesthesia, you know, Mm -hmm. the cross-pollination of senses, so like colors have sounds or or music has colors or whatever, you know, uh, uh, sounds have a taste or something, that this led to the creation of language because – the language is a sort of cross-pollination between the idea of a sound and the idea of a concept. Right. And so this kind of like uh, a mental boundary crossing that wouldn't have been useful in animals uh, suddenly is is spurred by ingestion of psychedelic substances, in this case I think psilocybin, and then that leads to humans creating language. Again, I don't know what the direct evidence for this would be. It's It's like an interesting speculation, but I don't know how you would prove it. Right. Yeah, I, I think ultimately you would not be able to prove it or really disprove it, and which makes it, I guess, kind of a safe hypothesis in that regard, but also a hypothesis that will probably never uh, evolve beyond the hypothesis level. Yeah, it's just kind of stuck at the interesting speculation station. Yeah, and it is interesting speculation. But anyway, I just want to go ahead and describe what that is because I feel like with McKenna especially – Depending on what you know about him and his work, you might enter into it thinking only about, say, machine elves and the time wave zero and some of the, the you know, the the fringier things that he discussed. Um, the thing, you know, his discussion too of things that he saw, say, on, on DMT. 
but uh, but on the other hand, you know, he was was an accomplished ethnobotanist, and and when he was you know, talking about uh, about mushrooms, he, he certainly knew what he was talking about, and mm-hmm. uh, and he also just had a lot of wonderful insight into just what was culturally going on and had been going on uh, at this point in time, especially in the United States concerning the subject of drugs. So he points out that. Drug is a you know is at times an amorphous term that we use to apply to certain substances, you know especially if we want to demonize one substance or elevate another exclusively the, to the domain um, and control of medical professionals. Uh, but he he writes this quote: "Eating a plant or an animal is a way of claiming its power, a way of assimilating its magic to oneself." In the minds of preliterate people, the lines between drugs, foods, and spices are rarely clearly drawn. The shaman who gorges himself on chili peppers to raise inner heat is hardly in a less altered state than the nitrous oxide enthusiast after a long inhalation. In our perception of flavor, in our pursuit of variety, in the sensation of eating, we are markedly different from even our primate cousins. Somewhere along the line, our new omnivorous eating habits and our evolving brain with its capacity to process sensory data were united in the happy notion that food can be experience. Gastronomy was born, born to join pharmacology, which must surely have preceded it, since maintenance of health through regulation of diet is seen among many animals. That offers you a little bit of a glimpse. Uh, that, you know, McKenna has a fantastic way with words, mm-hmm. and I think uh, he was also a fantastic public speaker. If you've ever seen videos of him giving his talks, oh, yeah. you know, which are, you know, he's one of those people who I think is able to put things in a way that's captivating that maybe makes the ideas uh, shine as if they have more merit than they would if put in a less captivating way by another speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, he certainly there's a little bit of shamanistic flavor at the beginning of that passage, but. I think what he's saying here, we can we can all really agree with. I mean, we are what we eat in so many, many ways. You know, we're continually rebuilding our ephemeral bodies out of the materials we consume, the chemicals and the nutrients. And McKenna also said, quote, the strategy of early hominid omnivores was to eat everything that seemed food-like and to vomit whatever was unpalatable. Plants, insects, and small animals found edible by this method were then inculcated into their diet. I mean, that's certainly, I, I see that in other animals. You know, you think about the way even domestic dogs who are, tend to be quite well fed, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not like they're lacking for nutrition, but it's just like if there's a thing that even might be food, <laughs> they're going to try to eat it. They're going to give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, they can just vomit it up. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is one of those areas that I, that is, I think, really remarkable when we stop and try to imagine the process of human beings, especially mm-hmm. figuring out what they can eat, what they can't eat, what, what substances they can use just the right amount of and not kill themselves uh, and potentially, you know, have some sort of beneficial effect, medicinal, uh, culinary or otherwise, Uh, you know, because ultimately we're talking about a long multi-generational process of human beings figuring out the properties of plants in their immediate surrounding and then passing that knowledge on. And it's, you know, it's really, it's, it's enough to tempt us with the tales of ancient astronauts, you know, the idea that surely some other force, some alien or some angel came to us and told us what we could eat. But resist that impulse. No, you're looking at real scientific labor in the ancient world. Yeah. The kind of scientific labor that was uh, on the subject of the self and like putting your own life on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime we, we touch on this topic, I'm always reminded of uh, a particular Chinese uh, myth, uh, the mythical emperor uh, Xin Nong, the divine farmer, uh, 
and uh, ultimately the founder uh, or the, the mythological founder of Chinese herbal medicine as well as agriculture itself. Hmm. Oh, there's the link again between uh, medicine and food. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anyway, he's uh, credited as having authored, uh, you know, a couple of really important uh, uh, books on, uh, you know, the herbal world. And according to uh, the, the myths, uh, Shinong either tasted hundreds of herbs or thrashed them with a magic whip in order to learn their properties. <laughs> That's great. Uh, according to one legend, he consumed 70 different poisons in a single day uh, in order to just, you know, continue this examination of the natural world. I also ran across some variants of the story online that mention him having a transparent stomach so that it allowed him to see, you know, how food is being broken down in his body. Oh. But I didn't see that this is not referenced in either of the main Chinese mythology textbooks that I, um, I frequently refer to. So I don't know, um, you know, to what extent there's validity to that or if it's, you know, an accurate translation, etc. But still, uh, you know, in, in mythology, uh, Xinong is essentially uh, – classifying all drugs. He's humanity's multi-generational process of food testing condensed into a single individual. Uh, because, you know, of course, climates change, humans move into new environments and destabilize their own environment. Ancient peoples would have figured out roughly what was in their immediate vicinity, and then they would have perhaps tried to take their important plants with them. But not every plant is easily suited for agriculture or new environments, and new plants would have continually uh, presented themselves in the course of their migration. You've got this image of uh, Shinong here in the outline, and he's just sticking something in his mouth and grimacing. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's great. There's some wonderful um, uh, paintings and drawings of Shinong where, you know, he seems to be just doing the work, you know, just mm -hmm. out there chewing on a, a twig or a leaf here and there and uh, and sensing it out, seeing what... Well, okay, what is this good for? What can this be used for? What can this uh, be used as a treatment for? And, uh, and in the, the writings attributed to him, uh, it mentions a host of different substances. At one point, cannabis comes up mm -hmm. and said it, uh, quote, will produce hallucinations if taken over a long term. Uh, it makes one communicate with spirits and lightens one's body. Mm. And while cannabis is not generally considered a, a psychedelic, uh, this does bring us to contemplation of psychedelics which are our prim primary concern here in these episodes, especially the two major psychedelics that have played a role in the often stunted Western exploration of their potent powers to bring about a different state of consciousness. All right, well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can dive more into the question of what are psychedelics. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about psychedelics uh, in this first of our series exploring the subject, and uh, I, I guess let's uh, go into the origin of this term. Why, why do people use the word psychedelic as opposed to other terms that might mean similar things or the same thing? Well, the, the term psychedelic derives from the Greek words for soul or mind and manifesting. And this name was bestowed in 1956 by British psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond. Yeah. Uh, another frame for the etymology is – so it's mind manifesting. Of course, you know, the Greek sihi is spelled like psyche – is a term for mind or soul. Uh, the, the Greek word delun, where the psychedelic part comes from, uh, can mean multiple things. It might mean manifesting. It can also, I think, mean like to reveal, to make visible or make clear. Mm -hmm. And th this is interesting because it fits with the early uses of psychedelics in psychiatry and neuroscience in the 1950s and 60s when they were considered a revolutionary research tool. Uh, multiple people, I think, have made this comparison, but one of them 
is the uh, the psychedelic enthusiast Stanislav Grof, who wrote that, quote, the potential significance of LSD and other psychedelics for psychiatry and psychology was comparable to the value of the microscope for biology or the telescope for mm. astronomy. Uh, he, so he's framing it as like a, a tool of magnification and clarification. It's something that allows you to see farther see inside at a greater resolution. Yeah. Now the term psychedelic, you know, ended up taking on a lot of additional baggage because this term was, was definitely taken up by uh, the champion by Timothy Leary and others. Timothy Leary, of course, we have a couple of episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on him um, that I recorded with Christian several years back. And as we discussed there, like Leary, Leary ultimately I think did a lot of damage uh, to the perceptions of psychedelic, he became he, he was he was ultimately more of a uh, more of a guru uh, type as opposed to you know a, you know a pure and dedicated scientist. Uh, he he began as a you know Harvard academic researcher studying oh, yeah. psychedelics, uh, but yeah, he clearly he became the nice word I think would be an enthusiast, somebody mm-hmm. who was clearly at a certain point not studying the subject in an objective and dispassionate way, right. but was more just sort of like an advocate for psychedelics, like these things are great and everybody should be taking them. Right, and then he did you know, willingly embrace uh, the the position of being so, sort of this leader almost, this unofficial um, and, you know, a guru figure that was at the forefront of this uh, counterculture movement, yeah. both in, uh, in, in the, uh, the ups and downs of that counterculture counterculture as well. Yeah. And so I think this is, you're correct, one reason why the term psychedelic has acquired some perhaps negative baggage. I think sometimes people think of that word more having to do with like recreational and sort of uh, music associated or party associated uses mm-hmm. of uh, uh, of these compounds that tend to cause, you know, hallucinations or highly altered states of consciousness. And I, I, I don't I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, I think psychedelic is a good term, and I want to keep using it throughout these episodes. Yeah, and I think there's a reason that, that people have stuck with it, uh, despite other terms having been presented. For instance, entheogens is one that comes up the most uh, right. and has been uh, uh, taken up and championed by, uh, uh, you know, in, in some respects. But uh, more and more you do see people coming back to uh, to psychedelics, and that's what we are going to use in these episodes. Yeah, and of course entheogens, I think one reason that's difficult is because Entheogens means like sort of like you know God revealing. Yeah. Like it, it it conjures up, uh, it brings up the gods or it brings up the divine. Right. It doesn't bring up the 1960s as much uh-huh. to its credit. <laughs> uh, like that's I think the benefit of it. But then when uh-huh. you actually uh, you know take it apart and look at what it means, it is perhaps leaning more heavily into the mystic. Yeah, w- which is fine because I mean. To be fair, the mystical experience is a very important part of the sort of research history of oh, absolutely. what the what these what effects these drugs produce and the most common reports about the effects that they have on people's thinking and on their lives. They very often do encourage types of mis- mystical thinking. They very often do uh, lead to people reporting mystical experiences or experiences that people, you know, relate to God or gods or some kind of divine spirit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, not everybody has those experiences on them and not everybody who has those kinds of experiences on them would attribute it to any kind of real spiritual force, though a lot would. So I think entheogens does have the negative property of maybe assuming a little too much of a 
thorough association with the spiritual. Right. Um, and so, so I, yeah, I like the idea of psychedelics. It is, it is mind revealing. Now, they're also sometimes called hallucinogens, uh, you know, just sort of roughly, uh, which of course is, is confusing as well. Uh, for starters, something can be a, an hallucinogen and not be a psychedelic compound. Uh, for sure, it, isn't cannabis sometimes classified as a hallucinogen? Uh, I, yeah, I think I think I've seen it uh, classified as such. Yeah, one part of this, of course, is you don't have to take a psychedelic to have an uh, an audible or visual hallucination. There are many other causes and conditions that can be involved, and you can make a strong case that our default perception of reality is nothing short of an hallucination. Likewise, psychedelics don't always cause hallucinations. In fact, full-blown hallucinations are actually uncommon. And they're probably not going to uh, be like the hallucinations you've seen in a psychedelic film. Right. I mean, I think often the hallucinations that are depicted in psychedelic movies are given far too, um, far too concrete of a character. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, so you see a glass dragon flying out of the Andromeda galaxy to eat your pain and, you know, rebirth you as a fire child or something. Where, whereas that kind of thing you might see, especially on some higher doses of some of these uh, psychedelics. But more often, you know, pe people, especially on lower doses, will have some states of altered perception, but they're not necessarily going to see, like, whole concrete visions of agents and objects coming toward them that aren't there. Yeah, I mean, we have to cut films a little bit of slack, I think, because ultimately it's a largely visual medium. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they're telling their stories with. So, of course, they're going to gravitate towards hallucinations and visualizations of psychedelic experience, some of which are just laughable. Uh, and, and occasionally you'll have a film uh, that, that really does a good job of capturing something that feels like an authentic uh, psychedelic uh, experience. But uh, I don't know. I find those to be few and far between. Yeah. Oh, and I should also point out that if you, when you classify uh, psychedelic as a hallucinogen, you're also kind of limiting it, you know, because ultimately these substances do a number of different things uh, outside of something that you could even loosely describe as an hallucination. Yeah, I mean, again, I think psychedelic is a good term. They are more generally mind-revealing or mind-manifesting. Yeah. By downplaying the role of hallucinations, we don't want to suggest that these drugs can't cause hallucinations. They very often do, especially at higher doses, right? Yeah, ab absolutely, especially when you're – and also things are a little different, as we'll discuss, when you get into clinical situations mm -hmm. where, um, you know, just the way that a particular substance is, is uh, it administered mm -hmm. uh, can make it more potent. However, you know, on the, the subject of visualization, um, at that World Science Festival panel that I attended, uh, one of the, uh, the speakers was, uh, was a, a British professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, uh, Anel Seth. And he pointed to the Google Deep Dream Generator uh, as actually being a decent approximation of the sort of visuals that can go on during a psychedelic experience. Hmm. Um, I, I think everybody's probably seen images or video that you utilize this um, Deep Dream uh, generator. But it's the kind of thing where it's like there's a face of a dog and everything. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you've never seen it, basically what it was was it was an algorithm that would take a photo that you – supplied, you know, you'd upload a photo and then you'd run it through the system. You could, I think, determine like to what degree it would get, you know, it, to how crazy it would get basically. Right. 
and it would start to reveal fractal patterns emerging from the lines and boundaries in the image. And very often, yeah, like faces and other recognizable forms that would show up in images from around the internet would start showing up in the image. You might see forms of plants, very often forms of animal faces, dog faces, and the couch cushions. Yeah, yeah. And this this absolutely matches up with, with my experiences where it, it's not like you're going, oh my goodness, there are dogs everywhere. Mm-hmm. But it would be more like there's a there's a fractal pattern to um, my immediate environment that I that is not there usually, or it looks like the grass is breathing, or you know perhaps you're looking at something like say a work of art or uh, in, uh, in my experience a hanging African mask, and it seems to be uh, alive in a certain to a certain extent. Yeah, not in a, a way where you're like, oh my God, the the mask is coming alive, you know, or anything like that. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I guess it's rather hard to put into words, but there is a, you know, a sense of fractal life uh, to everyday objects that is, that is not there otherwise. Yeah. And I think another way that the deep dream is appropriately compared to psychedelics is that the deep dream generator, I, I think basically worked by a recurrent pattern of extrapolation and amplification. So, you know, it sees something that's 0.5% like a dog face, mm-hmm. and it recognizes that because it's tried to track a lot of dog faces across the internet. And it says, let's lean into that. And then it makes it 2% like a dog face, then 10% like a dog <laughs> face, and finds more dog faces in what it's been extrapolating from the original image. So I, I can't help but notice that, you know, one tendency of the hallucinatory experience or of the psychedelic experience seems to be extrapolating and amplifying perceived significant patterns from random noise. So let's take another step back and and talk just in general about psychedelics and what particular substances we're talking about. Yeah, I guess we we need to briefly address the chemistry part of this, right? Yeah, so we're largely talking about the, the indole psychedelics. There's lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, there's psilocybin, which occurs, uh, uh, you know, naturally in um, several different varieties of mushrooms. Uh-huh. Uh, what I think two hundred different varieties. Uh-huh. Then there's uh, also in uh, dimethyltryptamine, mm-hmm. which is DMT. There's uh, there's ibogaine, and there are the beta carbolines. The ones that we're going to be discussing the most here are psilocybin, which again occurs naturally in mushrooms, and then of course LSD, which is a, was a, is a synthetic psychedelic that was first generated by Albert Hoffman in 1938 from lysergic acid, a chemical from the fur, the fungus ergot, and, which and, we've discussed on the show before. Uh, and Hoffman actually played an important role in isolating the compounds from the uh, psilocybes, mm-hmm. uh, mushrooms as well. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he, he sort of figures in both of the main streams here. But one thing I want to make clear that I didn't understand for a long time is that there there is not just one species of mushroom that is the psilocybin mushroom, right. and it's that species. There is this whole class of the psilocybes or the psilocybin mushrooms that is a you know a multi-species, you know, huge range of uh, hundreds of varieties of mushrooms that have these related effects. I think mainly based on the compound psilocin and psilocybin, which breaks down into psilocin in the body. DMT, by the way, is a, a naturally occurring compound as well. It's found in many different plants and animals, and is found uh, uh, inside the human brain as well. But it was also first synthesized in 1931 by chemist Richard Hilmuth Frederick Mansk. There are, there are plenty of other additional psychedelics that, uh, that occur, uh, that pop up in the research and all. They're, uh, they occur naturally in the world. There are the uh, Ibogaine substances that are found in two related African and South American uh, tree genera. Um, 
mostly known as an aphrodisiac in Africa, but it also has psychedelic properties at higher doses. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, the, there's the hallucinogenic uh, mescaline, which is found in the spineless cactus uh, peyote. It's a phenethylamine, as is MDMA, as is methamphetamine, uh, and as are a, a host of other drugs, including just like basic decongestants. Uh -huh. Yeah, you mentioned MDMA. Yeah. You and Christian did a whole uh, couple of episodes, I think, on MDMA did, a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, and we, we're not really focusing on MDMA here, uh, but, uh, you know, it is also a powerful Schedule One substance uh, with some promising possibilities for therapeutic, therapeutic use and also some pr a promising history of therapeutic use, but it kind of fell victim to the same uh, anti-drug uh, uh, efforts and the sort of uh, you know moral panic that was associated uh, with uh, with the hallucinogens as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, according to Stephen Ross, MD of the NYU Psilocybin Cancer Anxiety Study, speaking at the 2019 World Science Festival, it, he said that we're you know there's a, there's a very strong chance we're going to see MDMA rescheduled in the next couple of years due to uh, you know the promising research that's going on using it. Uh, you know particularly dealing I believe with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And you were talking there about it being reclassified as a less dangerous and less legally prohibited drug in the United States. Right, because a Schedule One in the U.S. means like there's nothing there's nothing you can do with it. There's not even like a medical uh, use for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I think in in some times in the past and to some degree still in the present, the Schedule One classification I think is treated more as a sort of punitive category than right. as a truly, you know, research or science-based category. Right. For instance, uh, cannabis, Schedule 1, uh, yeah. MDMA, Schedule 1, psilocybin, Schedule 1, LSD, Schedule 1, cocaine, Schedule 2. Hmm. There you go. Interesting. Well, since we're going to be focusing more on psilocybin mushrooms than on other psychedelics, I also thought it might be useful to just quickly mention a few of its more straightforward medically recognized effects and medical significance before we get on into the... Uh, the more uh, phenomenological right. uh, uh, common reports. So uh, I mentioned this a minute ago, I think, but the primary compounds responsible for the psychedelic effects of psilocybin mushrooms are the compounds psilocybin and psilocin, which ultimately amount to sort of the same thing since psilocybin breaks down into psilocin once inside the body. Psilocin is a more potent compound, but it occurs in smaller original quantities within the mushroom flesh. Uh, and compared to almost all other known drugs... Psilocybin has an exceptionally low potential for abuse and exceptionally few known risks. Uh, according to the University of Maryland Center for Substance Abuse Research, quote, there are no reports that psilocybin mushrooms are psychologically or physically addictive and use does not lead to dependence. For several days following the use of mushrooms, users may experience a period of psychological withdrawal and have difficulty discerning reality. So th that's like a, a potential drawback. But right. The, the way I've seen it described is that there's, there's virtually no physical uh, uh, ramifications, you know, like in terms of like just physiological damage to the body mm -hmm. as you would encounter with various other substances. It, that's that's not the the risk. There is like a small risk uh, psychologically, especially for, uh, namely for individuals with a family history of, say, psychosis yeah. or um, schizophrenia. Right. So no psychoactive drug is completely without risks. And we're not encouraging people to take psilocybin mushrooms or any other drug. If you decide to take a psychedelic, uh, any psychedelic compound you, or any compound at all, really, you should thoroughly research its, its effects for yourself any possible risk factors from trustworthy and science-based sources. Right. And I, th I think this is an area where, like, people talking about recreational drug use, I think mm -hmm. that can be – that can ultimately be kind of damaging because it implies that powerful substances like this can be 
purely recreational. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, are you flying this uh, F-14 fighter jet recreationally? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, you know, or are you taking it seriously? Like, uh-huh. you know, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful tool. Uh, you should, if you're going to choose to engage with it, do so with, with forethought. Exactly. So, yeah, like you were just sort of alluding to, while psilocybin has an exceptionally low level of recognized risk when compared with other drugs, it still is possible to experience negative psychological consequences. For example, if you have pre-existing risk factors like high anxiety or past episodes of derealization. Then, of course, also we should just mention the sort of practically associated risks. As the mycologist Paul Stamets makes clear, psychedelic species of psilocybes, you know, the psilocybin mushrooms, look extremely similar to many other species of poisonous little brown mushrooms mm-hmm. that can lead to an agonizing death if ingested. So people who plan to take psilocybin mushrooms should get them from an experienced, knowledgeable source who knows exactly how to identify them reliably. You don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're doing foraging psilocybin mushrooms for right. you. Of course, when you have a, a substance that's outlawed, uh-huh. um, that's kind of the thing a lot of people end up falling back on. So, exactly. I mean, that's one of the other benefits of, uh, I think, personally, of decriminalizing this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, now, also, according to the Maryland Center, uh, there are plenty of possible physiological effects of ingestion, depending on tons of different factors, like the exact species of mushroom you're dealing with and the preparation method, which, you know, can affect these. But they include, just to read through a few of these, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps and diarrhea, muscle relaxation, weakness and twitches, drowsiness, dizziness, uh, lack of coordination, lightheadedness, pupil dilation, dry mouth, facial flushing. You might have increased heart rate or blood pressure or body temperature, sweating, chills, shivering, numbness of the tongue, lips or mouth, and then feelings of physical heaviness or immobility. Um, or feelings of lightness or floating. Uh, And then, of course, you get to the psychological consequences. These aren't all the possibilities, but just to mention a few, you, of course, have the possibility of hallucinations, uh, heightened sensory perceptions where maybe colors seem more vivid or sounds are more acute, flavors more explosive. Mm -hmm. Or smells are stranger. We mentioned earlier synesthesia, the cross-sensory contamination. Colors make sound, sounds have colors, that kind of thing. Uh, The lack of ability to focus is commonly cited. Alterations in perception of space and time. You might kind of like time seems dilated or sped up. Uh, Anxiety and restlessness uh, or a sense of detachment from the self or from the surroundings, uh, including the, the concept known as ego loss, which we'll get into in more detail later. But beyond all those sort of like top line descriptions of, of psychological consequences, I think maybe we should take a break and when we come back, we can discuss in a little more detail like the kinds of common reports that people actually make about their experiences with psychedelics and and the more complex phenomenological responses to them. All right, we're back. Uh, We're talking about uh, psychedelics and uh, some of the, uh, we're about to get into some of the common reports about uh, uh, the the, the psychological effects of taking them. Yeah, now I, we are talking sort of about psychedelics in general, but with a special emphasis on psilocybin mushrooms or the psilocybes. Right. And, uh, and I, we should pro- probably mention, you know, one of the reasons we focused in on, on psilocybin but also LSD to a certain extent is that when you look at the studies that were done with these early on, like, uh, you know, in the, the, the 50s and, uh, and early 60s, uh, when there, when there were, um, you know, widespread studies being, they were looking into psychedelics, they were mostly using LSD because that was what was readily available at the time. 
today's studies are going to be almost exclusively uh, using psilocybin Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of different reasons that we'll explore later. Yeah, I think we're going to especially get into those more recent studies, maybe in our third episode. So yeah, so what, what are these common reports, the phenomenological reports? One thing that I think we should emphasize up front is the thing that a lot of people maybe who take these for the first time don't quite realize is the extreme importance of what's known in the psychedelic literature as set and setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the psychedelic drug is a fairly reliable gateway to an altered state of consciousness, possibly containing hallucinations, uh, feelings that parallel the classical forms of mystical experience. You know, we'll, we'll get into more on the mystical experience in a minute here. But the experience produced by the compound is not standardized by the psychopharmacology itself. It, it appears to be extremely sensitive to external factors uh, like the personality, the emotions, the thoughts and expectations of the person ingesting the compound. Uh, you know, this is referred to as the set or the mindset. And the physical environment and stimuli encountered while on the trip, which is the setting. Uh, and in my experience, a hallmark of the majority of especially negative experiences people report with psychedelics come from inattention to set and setting. Right, yeah. Like I remember uh, speaking to somebody and they, they said that like they had a terrible experience uh, on mushrooms or LSD. And, uh, and, but but the, the setting that they had was like, really trying to drive away from a fireworks show and having their car <laughs> overheat on uh-huh. the side of the road. That's a terrible, terrible set and setting. Yeah, I mean, this might seem kind of obvious, but like these are the kind of things that if someone is going to experiment with them, and in, uh, in addition to all the, you know, research you should do beforehand, making sure that you feel safe and you know mm-hmm. what you're doing and all that, it's also important to pay attention to set and setting to approach it with the right mindset, maybe to approach it in the company of someone who can be a positive guide for you, and also to approach it within a setting that feels positive and comfortable, such as a place where you feel at ease and at home, uh, maybe with access to na- nature and natural settings. Uh, people often report wanting to be outside, wanting to be among plants and mm-hmm. things. And it's interesting how all of these these things are matching up with some of the, uh, with really most of the the traditional ritualistic and shamanistic practices concerning these substances that were around for thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. uh, before, uh, you know, anybody thought about going to Woodstock or Burning Man. Right. I mean, very often these compounds were ingested as part of a ritual and a huge part of what rituals are, I mean, even outside the consumption of psychedelics, are set and setting manipulations. Mm-hmm. What is it when you go into a Gothic cathedral and there is music, you know, there's sacred sounding music echoing throughout the stone architecture and the room is dim and lit by candles and someone passes you by with a sensor, you know, that incense smoke is coming out of and, and it alters your senses with the smells and the sights and the sounds. This is creating a sort of a set and setting for you to have a slight mystical experience, even though you're not ingesting psychoactive compounds. No, well, but then again, when I go to church, uh, they always have coffee out front. Well, coffee, that's true. Sugar and cookies for the kids. There's tea. And if you're going to church in the Middle Ages, you might be getting some of that ergot rye. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> always, a, always a potential risk. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, a a huge part of what people do in religious rituals, I think, is manipulation of set and setting to Mm -hmm. create a sort of sacred or altered mind state in which you have a certain kind of experience. One thing I wanted to talk about is uh, something that Michael Pollan mentions in How to Change Your Mind. At one point, he's describing his own personal experiments with psilocybin. Uh, At one point, I know he talks about how he 
he took some when he was much younger and he had kind of a bad time because he was out away from home. I think he was out in a park in New York City and he he was getting worried about if people could tell when they were looking at right, him. Yes. It sounds like he was not in a comfortable environment. Yeah, well, I think he, re- he related two in camp. One was further out of the city and one was in the park and yeah. the one in the park was a little more anxious because it was like, oh, can they tell that I'm on drugs kind uh-huh. of a thing. Uh, but he also describes one that he did much later as an adult when he was preparing to write the book. And so he describes the altered sensory and conceptual experiences that he has on the drug. This is interesting, not as hallucinations, but as, quote, projections. And so he says, you know, projections are determined largely by his physical surroundings and by his own present thoughts and preoccupations. He he defines a projection as, quote, when we mix our emotions with certain objects that then reflect those feelings back to us so that they appear to glisten with meaning— So again, you know, he's not seeing the dragon flying out of the Andromeda galaxy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, he sees two different trees standing in a meadow, and he feels deep insights about his parents looking at these two trees. Uh, And this experience is largely determined not just by the drug, but by the environment that he's in and what's his preoccupations, what's on his mind. But certainly set and setting are are essential, really, in in all the literature uh, concerning psychedelic experience, be it, uh, you know, ancient rituals, Mm -hmm. counterculture uh, usages of the uh, substances, or the various clinical trials that are ongoing now. Yeah. Uh, So let's go to the next big common report that's pretty interesting. This one we we should call ineffability. Mm -hmm. This extremely common report is that the psychedelic experience is, one, either difficult or impossible to put into words— Or two, if it is put into words, the words do not accurately capture the nature of the experience. And and this is interesting in the way that it's both similar and dissimilar to everyday experiences, totally mundane ones. You know, we're all familiar with you were hanging out with some friends and something happened – and uh, you know you have an experience that has features that are hard to put into words. Like anytime you're telling a personal story and you end with the conclusion, "Well, I guess you had to be there." Boo! You're That's you're saying my well, you're saying there was something interesting or funny or notable about the experience that you don't know how to recreate with words. And that may be your shortcoming. Maybe you're not very good with words and you can't do it. Or maybe there's something that nobody could adequately put into words. Or I always am suspicious. Maybe they're just too lazy to tell me. That's like, also possible. Do you possible, not care yeah. enough about conveying this experience to me uh-huh. that you can't just take take a few steps back, put it put it in some better words, and then have another go at it? Don't play so holy. I know you've <laughs> said it. I know you've said it at some point. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I don't remember having said it, but I may have well said it. Oh, okay. Um, you are very good with words. So. Well, I, I think there is a tendency with a background in in, in writing is that. You tend to think that writing can do anything. That I anything, can do it. Yeah, yeah, anything can be captured in words. But then again, it's it's interesting to to then turn that on its head and think about what our words do. Our words don't always. Sometimes they do capture uh, an experience, and in capturing it, they cage it, and they cage it within the limitations of those words. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're so used to doing this with a lot of different experiences, we don't even think about how we're we're taking something that was observed. We're taking this this experience of reality that is rather different than, you know, from the paragraph that you create out of it. Mm-hmm. But we think of that paragraph as an, you know, 100% accurate depiction of reality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, something, of course, is always lost in the translation to words. And mm-hmm. everybody has had this experience every now and then of not being able to explain things. But it is notable how often, how almost always 
ineffability emerges as one of the most salient features of psychedelic experience. You pretty much always just had to be there. Uh, you know, you had to be me, basically, is the only way you can understand what the experience was. And often if you, at least in my experience, if you read a description of somebody else's experience with LSD or psilocybin that you know, was incredibly profound and meaningful and notable to them – you might think, okay, I don't get what's so profound about this. Something important is lost in the translation of the experience into a verbal narrative. Well, I mean, it's kind of like dreams, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, there's the old saying that, you know, or the old observation that we we only find our own dreams interesting and we're not interested in or we don't understand other people's dreams. Mm -hmm. Or certainly the sort of you had to be there, that applies to dreams all the time. I'm, yeah. I, I certainly am always having dreams that when you're having them, they're profound or scary or frightening or beautiful or weird. And then when you try and describe them later outside of the trappings of dream, you realize it sounds kind of hokey. Yeah. There's a quality that you can't really identify in words. And here's an interesting distinction. Maybe we can come back to this as the episodes go on. But I wonder, is this quality of ineffability that's so common to psychedelic experience because we don't have the vocabulary yet? Or because there is a quality of the experience that's inherently indescribable in any words. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I've heard some psychedelic enthusiasts frame it in the first way. It's like, you know, the, there's someone who's quoted in Pollen's book. I think it might have been Bob Jesse, but I don't want to – it could have been somebody else. But anyway, uh, he's describing psychedelic experiences and saying, you know, it's like you took – a, a paleolithic person and then transported them through time to modern-day Manhattan and sat them down, let them look around, and, and then sent them back and had them try to explain their experience. They wouldn't have the words to describe what they were looking at, cell phones and skyscrapers and all that. So that's one way of looking at why psychedelic experiences are hard to describe. It's like we, we don't have the words to put it into yet. But there, there's another way of looking at it that says, no, it's not that we lack the words. It's just that it can't be put into words. There's a there's a permanently, irresolvably unexplainable quality to the experience. Well, it's kind of, in a way, maybe too, it's, it's we're removed of some of the shackles of, uh, of language and our linguistic thinking for mm -hmm. a little bit. You know, it's kind of like you go on a trip and your cell phone battery is dead. You don't bring back any pictures because your cell phone wasn't operational during that time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, That's this, interesting, yeah. Paul, and by the way, we, uh, there was an excellent interview with him from Terry Gross on uh, Fresh Air. And in that, he talks about this, uh, the, the ineffable um, aspect of the experience. And he mentions that William James said that the mystical experience is ineffable, yet we try very hard to F it, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was, was clever. Yeah, uh, that is good. W William James is going to come up a lot in, in the next few minutes, by mm -hmm. the way. Uh, you know, I, I think back, you know, just on the power of language. And, and, uh, and also, you, you have to, I always have to realize that, you know, there are plenty of very talented writers and speakers who have discussed this, people that, that surely have the tools to communicate what they experience. But then again, like Terrence McKenna, I think is an example of someone who, you know, he only speaks of the ineffable rarely and is otherwise more than up to the task of discussing and describing what he experienced on psychedelics or, you know, interpreting and reinterpreting what he experienced. But even he at times kind of falls back on the, hey, look, you had to be there. Uh, yeah. explanation, uh, particularly when he was talking about experiencing uh, this other, like uh, the idea of like experiencing an other entity while on DMT. Uh, he was, he kind of sort of leaves it with uh, with like, hey, you, you try it as well. You tell me what it is. Well, that experience of the other, I think, is the next thing I want to get into. Oh, yeah, you're right. This does flow directly into the next area we're going to discuss. Yeah, so the next feature that's a common phenomenological report of the psychedelic experience is 
veridicality. That's what I'd call it. Uh, William James called this the noetic quality. So this feature of psychedelic experience, which has long interested me, uh, is the way that a lot of people emerge from their experiences on psilocybin or on LSD or something, believing not just that they had an experience that was fun or was interesting or was unique, but that they learned something crucial and objectively true, that they acquired real true information or genuine understanding that they did not have before. Uh, and you know, so the American psychologist William James, who we've mentioned a couple times already, he called this the noetic quality. Uh, and he noted very uh, pointedly that it's different from the way people feel about dreams, where you go into a dream, you might have a very altered state of consciousness, some strange things happen. You feel maybe in the dream like you learn things that are important. But you almost never wake up from a dream and think, you know, I learned objectively true information from the dream. Right. Like there's there's this knowledge, there's this understanding that it was not reality. Uh, even if in the more in, you know extreme cases of nightmares or disturbing dream content, we might still feel shaken by it. I mean, we've all, I think, had that experience where like the dream leaves you, it affects you, and it takes maybe a day to shake it off. Yeah. But – you're not you're not viewing as it. It's like having seen a horror movie that disturbed you, right? Exactly. As opposed to, oh my goodness, Jason Voorhees attacked me. You you easily discard the dream as nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not everybody does this. I mean, some people think they get you know prophetic visions and dreams and stuff, and this is usually part of some kind of supernatural worldview in which you believe that there are gods that are communicating with you and right. all that. But people don't typically. Uh, go from, you know, not believing in supernatural conveyances and communications to saying, oh, a dream taught me something objectively true about the universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a commonly reported type of psychedelic experience, for example, is the feeling of having been put in contact with or in the presence of some other entity frequently interpreted as God or as some, you know, embodied form of an ideal like love or an embodied form of the universe or some kind of universal consciousness or as maybe a loved one who has died or as some more obscure others like Terrence McKenna's machine elves. You know, he talked about taking DMT and just encountering these other entities, the machine elves or the, you know, whatever he called them. Right. Yeah, in uh, Food of the Gods, uh, I don't think he refers to them as machine elves there, but he discusses briefly the other that is experienced through DMT. And ultimately he's like, hey, try it yourself. Set aside three minutes, eight minutes of your time Uh and go try it for yourself. And you tell me what you experienced. Yeah. And so the really interesting thing here is that so many people come out of these types of experiences, not just thinking, wow, that was an interesting hallucination, like they were watching a movie, but believing they've actually been made aware of the real existence of a real other entity and carrying this belief of acquired knowledge with them after the effects of the drug have worn off. Uh, Another way I would say veridicality presents is uh, ineffable perceptions of the value of statements and insights. An example of this would be maybe a person on a psychedelic substances realizes that, you know, some cliche they've heard a million times, realizes that God is love and they may have heard this a million times before, but suddenly the same statement is interpreted as a profound insight that's revealing and true in ways that can't really be explained. But you have the feeling that you've discovered a great truth, even if others, you know, in communicating it to them, they might not see it as, as insightful as you do. 
Uh, another interesting feature of this noetic or vertical quality of psychedelic experience is that it often feels kind of Gnostic to me. I mm-hmm. mean, Gnostic in the religious sense. Of course, Gnosticism was an ancient religion in which some form of salvation relied on acquiring secret knowledge or esoteric dogmas and rites that were only revealed to initiates. Well, you know, there was sort of like the false, uh, fraudulent public face of the religion that was for just all the people hanging out and listening in the crowds. And then there were the real dogmas and the real truths about, you know, the heavens and what you do to get there that, that are sort of only talked about in secret if you're one of the in-crowd. And it's not just that many people think they've gained objectively true information from psychedelic experiences. It's often interpreted as a sort of deep secret that they've been allowed to glimpse, like the curtain has been lifted for them and they are, they've been let in on the secret. Yeah, they've, so they've seen through the illusion of, uh, of perceived reality uh-huh. and may, maybe had some glimpse at absolute reality. Right, so uh, a really common version here is the idea that People have psychedelic experiences and then afterwards emerge with a strong conviction that there's more to life than what we see or that there's some dimension of existence that's beyond the better understood material dimension of existence. In the words of William James, uh, the experience, quote, forbids a premature closing of our accounts with reality. Oh, that's nice. And and certainly the history of psychedelic research is filled with examples of this as well. You know, often very scientifically minded individuals, you know, emerging with a newfound or developing or enhanced sense of either the mystic or uh, often is the case, you know, a connection with nature. Mm -hmm. And there there could be multiple things going on here. Either way, it's interesting. I mean, Mm -hmm. one way of looking at it is that psychedelic experiences do actually reveal something true to people. And another way of looking at it is there's a fairly consistent uh, psychological effect they produce creating the illusion that something objectively true has been revealed. Uh, but either way, it's very psychologically important and, and powerful and, and fascinating that they do this. Right. I mean, you could to, to ground it more in some of the, you know, the science we've touched on on the show before, uh, like plasticity. You can look mm-hmm. at it from a plasticity standpoint. You could say, well, you know, it's it's allowing the mind to change, you know? I mean, that's kind of uh, Pollan's whole point in the title is, uh-huh. uh, is it's not so much these individual substances and what they do. It's not like, and, and, and that's certainly one of the hallmarks of the studies we'll get to later, but it's the state of mind that it puts one in and what can be done with an individual when they are in that state of mind. Exactly. I mean, one of the interesting things about these psychedelic states of mind that, uh, that, of course, is brought up by lots of authors is the ways that they parallel what William James wrote about as the traditional qualities of mystical experience, you know, r- profound religious experiences that people mm-hmm. have. Uh, both of these first two characteristics we've been talking about, ineffability and the veridical or noetic quality, are also the first two markers of mystical experience that James writes about in the book The Varieties of Religious Experience, which was published around the turn of the 20th century. Now, of Ineffability, James writes, quote, mystical states are more like states of feeling than states of intellect. No one can make clear to another who has never had a certain feeling in what the quality or worth of it consists. And of the noetic quality or the vertical quality, he writes that mystical experiences, quote, are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, 
all inarticulate though they remain, and as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. This reminds me, you know, one of the key aspects of traditional psychedelic use, some of the the more thought-out counterculture uses, as well as the clinical uses today, is what occurs after the trip. This period of consolidation and integration, where you're, you're stopping and saying, okay, what did that mean? How, how shall I interpret this and uh-huh. then and then move on and apply it to my life? Right. I think we have to realize that, uh, you know, the, our, our memories of psychedelic experiences are still memories. Yeah. And they still can be altered by the mind and will be altered by the mind every time we draw them back out again. Of course, yeah, as, as any experience would be. Uh, j- just as a funny note, one thing I, I thought we should mention is that, uh, you know, William James, he's writing around the turn of the 20th century, and it, James was not afforded the many wonderful options for chemical alterations of consciousness that later researchers were. Apparently, he did a lot of nitrous oxides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you read William James, it's funny to imagine him trying to, like, talk about this experience firsthand and just doing whippets. <laughs> um. But uh, we should mention also James has two other markers of mystical experience. So I'm ne- not necessarily counting these as as clear markers of psychedelic experiences, but just uh, to, to continue his exploration of mystical experiences mm-hmm. since there's been a lot of overlap so far. Uh, the other two James mentions are transiency and passivity. So transiency means the experience is time limited. You know, it, true enough, of course, for the trip length of psychedelic drugs. Uh, doesn't seem a super relevant, uh, but what does seem a little more relevant is James's comment that while the experience itself doesn't last forever, quote, from one recurrence to another, it is susceptible of continuous development in what is felt as inner richness and importance. And uh, Pollen quotes this section as well. And then finally, there's passivity as a Jamesian marker of mystical experience, which means the person having the mystical experience believes their will has been subverted or held in abeyance by a superior power. And there are some psychedelic experiences that have this quality. You could view it as somewhat, uh, though not exactly parallel to the next characteristic we're about to mention. Yeah, and I think set and setting likely are, you know, play a key role here as well, though though it seems to be very difficult to shake with, with more intense experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Albert Hoffman reflected this, you know, personifying LSD to a certain extent is like a thing that found him. Yeah. And, uh, and McKenna certainly uh, discussed it in these uh, terms as well. Yeah. So the next big thing that is this very interesting common feature of especially maybe higher doses of psychedelic experience uh, is the idea of loss of ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's affected by the ineffability criterion, I would say, because it's often hard to describe what this is like. But many who have had psychedelic experiences report the dissolution of the self, having consciousness reduced to a state of experience in which there is no I anymore, there is no me Uh, And one way I've always interpreted this is that some psychedelics have the power to reduce or eliminate the self-world distinction. You know, we have this categorical barrier we put up in our minds between everything that is not me and then me. And what happens when that distinction sort of gets blurred or erased? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly relate to this from experience with yoga uh, and, and meditation. Yeah. Um, you know, when not every time, but uh, occasionally, occasionally if I have like a really good yoga session, uh, I can reach that point where it's, uh, you know, I, I lose a sense of me. 
it's a, a wonderful experience that that can be, I think, difficult to put into words. I mean, the only way you can describe it is like is ego loss, or some use the term ego death, which I think is a little that's a little harsh. Let's not pull death into this mm-hmm. <laughs> whole situation. I- experience without a self, yeah, yeah. One way that Terence McKenna described these uh, these substances and others, uh, he described them as being boundary dissolving mm-hmm. uh, substances, and talked about their boundary dissolving properties, which I think is is a perfect description. The boundary between you and others, between you and nature, um, or you, you and the cosmos, it seems to dissolve. So the fortress of the self crumbles away, if only for a little bit. And and of course, this sort of experience, like a lot of the experiences involved in the psychedelic experience, you know, can 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 of course be achieved via other means. But as a, a number of these commentators have pointed out, these these chemical shortcuts are are shortcuts, but they're also kind of like high speed shortcuts. Yeah, you know, they're kind of like express lanes. Yeah, exactly. Um, for yeah. better or worse, they require a lot less work than achieving loss of ego through meditation or something, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot less practice. I would say probably too. Right. But, but I, again, I do really love this description of something being a boundary-dissolving substance mm-hmm. and, or even just a boundary-dissolving experience. And I feel like, uh, in, you know, uh, putting aside, you know, psychedelic substances entirely, I feel like we do need more boundary-dissolving experiences in life because we just throw up so many boundaries between ourselves and each other and, and uh, certainly against nature. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this is a common, I think, uh, way that I mean, we'll talk more in subsequent episodes about interesting research about the ways that psychedelics have been shown to have the potential to actually change adult personality, which is a fascinating property and uh, makes them kind of worth their weight in gold, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, some of the ways we can see that is, uh, so in the the boundary dissolving property, to whatever extent that does exist between humans, I think tends to lead people who who consume psychedelics to have a more communitarian mindset after using them. Uh, The nature boundary dissolution thing is very interesting because Mm -hmm. you very often see uh, people having stronger affinities with the rest of nature, with plants and animals and the natural environment after taking these substances. You know, Michael Pollan in his book compares the, this dissolution of the boundary with nature uh, to one of my favorites, Alexander von Humboldt, who, oh. you know, I think he, he doesn't name the book, but I think in the book he alludes to having read The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolfe, that biography of Humboldt that I mm-hmm. uh, recommended a couple of years ago uh, and is still a great read if you get a chance. But von Humboldt said, you know, one of the great realizations is that, you know, you are not in nature. He says, I am nature. Yeah. And that psychedelics seem to encourage people to think this way. One last interesting common report is this thing that is sometimes, I think, termed the afterglow. Worth mentioning that some users of psychedelic substances report additional subjective experiences after they've returned to their baseline state of consciousness. So you're no longer experiencing maybe sensory hallucinations or significantly altered states of consciousness, but after you're done with the psychedelic trip on LSD or psilocybin, Sometimes people report that the world just seems very bright and alive and wonderful and full of possibilities. Michael Pollan describes this as, quote, the opposite of a hangover. <laughs> it's kind of like the windows have been opened and allowed uh, the air to circulate. And then after the windows are closed once more or mostly closed, uh, the, the air is still fresh. The air is still renewed. 
Yeah, and, and this brings me back to you know, what I just said earlier about uh, consolidation and integration. And I think this is going to be very important to keep in mind as we consider, you know, traditional shamanistic and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, and scientific uses of these uh, substances, you know, uh, both in the scientific research that's going on today and also the sort of underground therapy sessions uh, that are as well that uh, Michael Pollan uh, writes about in his book. You know, where afterwards, during in this afterglow, you ask, well, what did I learn from the experience? What can I bring with this, bring out of this into the waking world? Uh, it, it reminds me of one of Alan Watts' famous quotes about, you know, in which he compared psychedelic experience to a scientist using a microscope. Oh, like Groff did, yeah. Yeah, and the idea being that a biologist will use the microscope, but then uh, but he's not going to have, uh, they're not going to have their eye glued to the microscope. They have to leave the microscope then in order to understand nature as it is uh, conceived of, uh, you know, outside of the microscopic or telescopic experience. Right. You don't really see or observe just by looking at something. You have to also step back and think about what you saw. Right. Now, a couple of other uh, bits of insight that were brought up in that World Science Festival panel. Anil Seth uh, mentioned that there is increased randomness, or there can be, and uh, and and he also pointed out that, you know, this, our sense of self is ultimately a perception. Oh, yeah. And the default mode network plays a big role in it. He said it's important to to point out that the self is not the default, default mode network. We shouldn't, like, draw too strong of a comparison between the two, but there's still a strong connection. And he said that psychedelics temporarily reorganize these networks, you know. So for, so forget, you know, new hallucinations. They mess with the primary hallucination of the self, the hallucination that we have day in and day out. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the idea that we're set off from the natural world, that we're set off from each other. So that's I think that's a, a, a really interesting way of looking at it. Don't think about the new hallucination that is brought on by a psychedelic, but the primary hallucination that may be disrupted and then what we can learn from that. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the funny things is that – so the the idea of seeing hallucinations while you're on a psychedelic can sort of bias you toward thinking that what psychedelics do is they give you an inaccurate perception of nature because, of course, you know, you hallucinate things on psychedelics that there's no way to show that they're actually physically there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you shouldn't conclude from that the corollary that the standard, like the default state of consciousness is accurate and the altered state of consciousness is thus estranged or inaccurate. Right. It might see things in the physical environment that aren't physically there, but its perception of the self and how the self works may be no less accurate or maybe more accurate than your default state. Right. And then a lot of this too, it's like we're not necessarily talking about a matrix scenario where, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, now I see the real world. But like the details, the, the emphasis is that we place on things, et cetera, the values that we place. Another individual on that panel at World Science Festival was a Berkeley professor of psychology and philosophy, Alison Gopnik, uh, who we've also discussed in the program here before because she deals a lot with uh, the minds of young children and mm -hmm. developing mind states. You know, she discussed how it's it's how these uh, how psychedelics seem to open up exploratory possibilities. Uh, in individuals, you know, in keeping with the plasticity of in the mind of a young child. She calls this uh, lantern consciousness, mm. uh, and, you know, comparing it to the illumination of a lantern. And she, sa she said before that babies and young children are basically tripping all the time. They are basically having a psychedelic experience, uh, which is why, you know, children can be so trying because they just really will not boil down and be a part of the, the rational world. They're continually in psychedelic exploration mode. And so maybe 
you know, part of it is that psychedelics put one or allow one to connect maybe in a more adult way with that same level of plasticity. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's commonly, it's a metaphor that's often used by uh, psychologists, psychiatrists who are interested in this mode of thinking that psychedelics uh, sort of like they break the automatic uh, cliches of connection that you make mm-hmm. in your mind. So you're able to see familiar objects as if you're seeing them for the first time. And our mind is just full of these nonverbal cliches of connections we make between things. When we see a pen, we know it's for writing. And mm-hmm. you just see it and like you ignore all of the other strange associations you might make about the form of the pen in your hand. But the, the psychedelics, like, they break that automatic connection and instead you see it as this radically ambiguous form that appears before you and you could make connections to all kinds of things. All right. Well, we're going to call this episode right here. But we will continue this exploration in the next uh, at least a couple of episodes. Yeah. So, so I, a lot of ground to cover. I think we went kind of long this time, but I think it was important to get all the grounding there so we can follow through in, in the next few episodes where we're going to talk about the history and the natural history of psychedelics and especially psilocybin to talk about some of the research that's been going on, especially mm-hmm. since around 2006 about therapeutic uses of psychedelics and the ways they can contribute to adult personality change and other things. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating how just just in the history of this show, in the history of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, like we, we have seen so much progress made with, uh, with psychedelic research. So it's going to be really exciting to discuss that in uh, uh, upcoming episodes. Totally. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, there are a ton of ways to do that. You can go to our mothership, our homepage, that's stufftoblowyourmind.com. Also, hey, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about it. Tell your family members about it. Wherever you get the podcast itself, leave us some stars. Leave a nice review. If, if that's an option to do so, that will help us out in the long run. So huge thanks to our excellent brand new audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.